0: Today's episode is brought to you by Armin Davoudian's tender and inventive debut poetry collection, The Palace of Forty Pillars. Called Brilliant and Heartfelt by Ritchie Hoffman, these poems tell the story of a self estranged from the world around him as a gay adolescent, an Armenian in Iran, and an immigrant in America. Through formal invention and a masterful attention to rhyme and meter, Davudian recreates, with his art, a home for his speaker who is unable to return to it in life. The Palace of Forty Pillars is out on March 19th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. About eight years ago now, Jesse Ball, a recent guest on the show at the time, and one of my favorite interviews, at a time when I was trying to puzzle out how to address rising costs of doing the show with its increasing audience. Out of the blue, he sent me three boxes of an out-of-print co-written book of his, Vera and Linus, that was published by a small Icelandic press. And it was really this, Vera and Linus, the main thing that I offered to entice listeners to be supporters for many years. And looking back, this gesture may be the reason in many ways that I'm still here, that the show kept going and keeps going. This was followed by some other out-of-the-blue gestures, most notably Tin House adopting the show and offering their own books to listeners, and The Dorothy Project, when I talked to Karen Balin and Christina Rivera Garza back-to-back, offering a largesse of their back catalog. But probably nothing feels as monumental, not since Jesse's first gesture of today's guest, Anne Markin's gift, to the show. She runs the amazing press, The Third Thing, which shares a lot in common with Between the Covers, namely that it focuses on the interdisciplinary works that bring together different genres or blur the boundaries between them or that refuse to sit neatly within any of them. And her press has an intersectional ethos and realizes that curation and publication are inescapably political acts, that one either reiterates the world or remakes it. On top of that, with Anne's longtime love of the materiality of books, these books, as objects, to hold and behold every detail of them, they're improbably beautiful, So to cut to the chase, Anne sent me a monumental box of The Third Thing books to offer to future supporters. And there are really too many to mention now, but I'll mention a couple of them. There is one that's two books in one, with work by Paul Lava Ceballos and Quentin Baker that includes commentary by Christina Sharp and artwork by Torquasi Dyson. There's a lyric noir fugitive assemblage by writer, attorney, and evolutionary biologist Jennifer Calkins. And the 100th anniversary critical edition of Gene Tumor's Cane, which comes with an oracular deck with prompts and images and calls to respond from Black thinkers and makers, from M. Norbessie Phillip to Alexis Pauline Gums. So for sure, check out the third thing as well as the Patreon page, where you can support the show and get yourself a book from them. Anne also contributes to the Bonus Audio Archive, a morning reading full of birdsong from her front porch of her book before the one we discussed today, The Accident, An Account. The Bonus Audio Archive is another possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener-supporter you can find out about all of this and much more at patreon.com/between the covers and now for today's episode with Anne DeMarkin Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, interdisciplinary artist, editor, and publisher Anne Demarkin. Demarkin has a BA with a focus on experimental media from Evergreen State College and an MFA in creative writing from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Her more recent site-specific works include Invisible Ink Reparations and Invisible Ink Homeless, the latter of which involves the words of houseless residents at the Compass First Presbyterian Shelter in Seattle and the Interfaith Works Overnight Shelter in Olympia, and the Redaction Project, which involved a redactive disarticulation of her unpublished story collection. DeMarkin directed with M. Freeman the feature film group, following nine women who meet Every Wednesday for 21 Weeks of Group Therapy, starring, among others, Carrie Brownstein. It won Best Director as well as Audience Choice for Best Feature Film at the Seattle Lesbian and Gay Film Festival and Best Narrative Feature at the Director's View Film Festival. She's also written and directed documentary video shorts from a short-form documentary on innovative stormwater management and treatment techniques, to short videos for people with developmental disabilities and for advancing legislative advocacy for people with disabilities. DeMarkin is also the founder, editor, and publisher of The Third Thing, a press that produces books that foreground the interdisciplinary and the intersectional in terms of form, content, and perspective. The Third Thing's recent books include a critical edition of Harlem Renaissance writer Gene Toomers Kane in honor of its 100th anniversary, which comes with an oracular card deck with Black thinkers and makers, including Pass Between the Covers guests, Kinesia Lubrin, Christina Sharp, Gabrielle Seville, Douglas Kearney, John Keane, Nikki Finney, and many others offering insights into the work in the form of prompts, gestures, images questions, and calls to respond. Anne Markin has taught writing, moving image media and narrative studies at Evergreen State College, and has served as visiting artist in the MFA in Interdisciplinary Arts Program at Goddard College. Her short fiction has been featured in Best American Voices, Narrative, and Glimmer Train, has appeared on NPR's Selected Shorts, and has won multiple awards, including the Symphony Space Stella Kupferberg Memorial Short Story Prize, picked by Amy Hempel, and the Plowshares Emerging Writers' Contest, as judged by Carmen Maria Machado. She's the author of the uncategorizable book The Accident, an Account, described by the publisher as a fragmentary lyric thing, not a story, not a record, an account provisional, and subject to revision. A reckoning with the ways language and narrative fail to make sense of the recursive slippages of loss. Ander Monson says of the accident, this book haunted me, moving me back and forth between image and text, between page and screen via QR code and fragment, I was reminded of the ghostly effect I get from looking at stereograms. Focus on its pieces in the right mood, and a third composite text emerges that jumps off the page. The accident was an uneasy and pleasurable reading experience that remained bright in my mind well after putting it down. And Vicky now adds, crepuscular and gradual, minimal and tender, the words and photographic poems in Andamarkin's The Accident are filled with measured, continuous, indestructible longing. She has a quiet way of making you surrender, ecologically and aesthetically, through her accounts transient, fugitive beauty and explicit interlacing, dormant fragility. Ann Markin is here today to talk about her debut novel, Winner of the 2022 Novel Prize, and thus now being published in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia by New Directions, Fitzgeraldo Editions, and Gerimondo, respectively, entitled It Lasts Forever and Then It's Over. Sabrina Ora Mark says, Anne DeMarkin must write in a charmed ink that first erases the line between the living and the dead and then, with prose as elegant as it is spooked, tells the story of what lies underneath. I have never read anything like this brilliant debut. Jeff Vandermeer adds, It lasts forever and then it's over, is sad, shocking, funny, prophetic, visceral, and deeply human. From amid the dislocations, the lacerations, A profound meditation arises. Highly recommended. And finally, Alexandra Kleeman says Astounding, inventive, and utterly original, Anne DeMarkin has written a freakish classic with wisdom to spare about life, death, and the eerily vast space between. I was absolute putty in this book's hands. Welcome to Between the Covers, Anne DeMarkin.
1: Thank you, David. Thank you.
0: So we've corresponded intermittently over the years, sometimes about an author you're publishing, sometimes me reaching out to you. For example, when I talked to Christina Sharp and I wanted to include two of the books that the third thing published that included her writing and her photography. But we had one span of intense correspondence, which was during the two months between you being announced for the shortlist for the novel prize and actually winning it. You were trying not to get your hopes up, and yet you were compulsively checking your email. And I was suggesting that there was already a victory of sorts in being shortlisted and that you would be able to mention this in your cover letters to publishers or agents. But as we spoke more, and as I prepared for today later on, I realized that my... Sentiment was definitely cold comfort in your case. Over the years, instead of submitting mainly through open submission periods, you often entered your stories and your book manuscript into contests, thinking that it might grab attention to agents and otherwise. But looking over the past two decades, the number of close calls, the number of times you were a finalist and not a winner is actually remarkable. Of course, in that span of time, you did win things too, but here you were shortlisted yet again. And even this new novel was a finalist for the Zank Fiction Prize before winning the Novel Prize. And similarly, over that time period, you have both experienced the silences of querying agents and been involved in what you describe as lengthy and emotionally expensive conversations with agents who love your project but eventually pass because it's too weird, with you describing your situation to me as a self-styled, years-long, unagented slog. I mention this because as a writer and publisher yourself, I know you are also keenly aware of and interested in the process of not only writing but also bookmaking and helping writing find readers. I'm also interested because when you said to me about this umpteenth indeterminate waiting period for you. Quote, the whole strange gap between writing and publishing is a great place to encounter and question ideas of yourself. I think a lot of listeners who are art makers can probably relate, but mainly I bring it up because you're now living my dream. New directions and Fitzcarraldo being my pole star presses. When I think of my own work, and to be corresponding with you as you win and witnessing all that has happened since, not just New Directions and Fitzgerald and Geremondo, but getting to choose between two of your dream agents, being picked up by Gallimard in France, the publishers of Proust, Camus, Duras, and more. This isn't a question, but a long-winded congratulations because it's really been an incredible joy to watch you being strapped to a rocket like this.
1: Thank you for reflecting on the past year and for being with me throughout it. It, It's nice to hear it referred to as a a rocket ride. And (laughs) sometimes the space has felt more real than the rocket. It, It does continue to be, I guess, comfortingly, an indeterminate process. There are a lot of things to do, especially right now. I'm in the process right now of scheduling and planning events, readings and conversations with people about the book. And so there are lots of practical things to take care of, but that's kind of just the littlest bit of this experience. And the most comfortable for me as a producer, I can you know, make lists and check things off. But there have been a lot of listless, listless days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this
0: sudden way in which you've found an immense readership in multiple languages on multiple continents all at once makes me think of the epigraph to your new book by Judith Butler, quote, without you, that indefinite, promiscuous and expansive pronoun, we are wrecked and we fall. Thinking of that you, I wonder if you have a philosophy or some thoughts about the reader in relationship to the writing, whether your writing in this book in particular is addressed to a you. I know the book is literally addressed to a you, but more generally, a you, specific or vague, particular or imaginary. And do you see the reader as, as completing the work in some way? I think of Percival Everett, who balks at questions at all about what his work means for him. It's the reader who decides the reader's role is to know and to determine that the reader, the indefinite promiscuous reader to borrow Butler's words is the ultimate arbiter of meaning.
1: I don't know that I would be, I don't know if I could abandon entirely my sense or my attachment to my work's meaning, maybe at least in this book it felt very guided by by a particular inquiry, a line of questioning, and the pursuit of a feeling. It was an effort to sustain a very particular to this project feeling, and I would hope that that is communicated with some similarity to the feeling that I had. Yet I definitely relate to that, to that idea of the reader and write so much with the idea that it's the, a collaboration with the reader and more than anything to leave room for the reader, to not fill up every space, every imaginary space with what I'm seeing, but rather to provide maybe just enough to lead just enough to open a space, not to fill up a space, but rather to describe a space that then the reader occupies. The reader fills very much in the way that Roland Barthes talks about in The Pleasure of the Text, in that he coyly describes it as cruising for a reader, that you you show up there on the off chance, that you'll meet somebody for who knows what. Or oh.
0: we know exactly what. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, perhaps it's fitting to start with the notion of the bardo in Buddhism, the intermediate space between one life and the next, or, or purgatory in Christianity, given the indeterminate, seemingly never-ending space that you've just left for a new life as a writer. I thought of the bardo reading this book and also of a Japanese film called Afterlife, uh, not because your book and the film share similar plots in the in the film every monday a group of recently deceased people check in at a lodge and they meet with social workers who ask them to go back over their lives and choose only one memory to take with them into the afterlife and they have a couple days to figure this out with the help of the social workers the one thing that they will remember for eternity Your book has no obvious common points with this plot, but it kind of shares a kindred setting. This decrepit hotel where your characters meet reminds me of The Lodge, and then being in this not-life, not-death, and somehow both states also reminds me of this. I'd love for you to maybe more fully paint the setting of your book, which also seems post-apocalyptic, in a real-world way, but has lines like, maybe there is a time between end and beginning that is like the time between beginning and end, a time that is to middle as beginning is to end. Maybe this is that time, middle but without the hope of resolution. So paint the setting a little more fully for us, but also talk about how you see this setting metaphysically in relation to other indeterminate spaces like the Bardo, if if you do at all see it in relationship to any of these other well-known indeterminate spaces?
1: I see very much real places that are familiar to me. At a certain point, or for a long time writing the book, I thought of it and even talked about it as a memoir. And the book, in some ways, remains very much a memoir, though entirely fabricated. but the setting the settings are familiar to me. It's here in the Pacific Northwest, between Olympia and the Long Beach Peninsula, pretty much those miles, many of them stretched along real roads. The hotel is a hotel that I know the Golf course is a golf course that I know, but not. So landmarks and places are, are real landmarks and places to me. So in that way, the setting is, like the book, not figurative. And like the book, all of these real places do in some way exist, not only now, they exist all the time. They exist in a future that feels like it hovers just out of sight or or just barely within sight. Like I can just just begin to see that future. And it looks a lot like now. So there's the real place of it. And then there is a sort of conceptual place or a set of conceptual places that contain the book. It's structured in three parts seven parts and broken into into three larger parts or grouped into three parts. There are three illustrations in the book that I had pinned to my wall while I was working on the book that I drew as descriptions for myself of the book shape. And one is this sort of messy axonometric cube with built of other cubes that are sort of wrongly attached and stacked together so that you're kind of looking through the grid. And that's how I thought of the hotel as this sort of shambly network of broken lines and cubes that the characters sort of move between and are lost in and contained by. The second part of the book breaks into a dashed line. The dashed line is actually drawn across a folded piece of paper that I unfolded to make the dash. And that's how I think of that part of the book as a continuous thing that's been broken apart and all the spaces opened up between it. And she sort of, the character sort of falls into these spaces. And when she falls into those spaces, I'd say that's where the past and the future of the places that I know exist, the the, the in-between, the gaps that open up in our reality, those those middles, that that unnamed middle-like space. Mm. And then finally, it becomes a kind of unruly spiral where she leaves this time and she leaves this place, and yet both are contained still. Not this time and not this place are still this time and this place. Mm. So I'm, I'm just rambling, but to say that the places in the book, the setting of the book, it's all it's all familiar to me and i think i hope familiar in a in a kind of um, si- slant way to readers but also it is that other realm whether it's bardo and, and i say that other realm as a person who's totally unconvinced of any other realm and <laughs> oh that realm <laughs> More like that That realm is this realm.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you about that realm that you're speaking into that you're also skeptical of. This third space and this third way of being, not this or that, and yet both this and that, of course, makes me think of the title of your press, The Third Thing, where you say in the description of it, the third thing is the idea that emerges when we use imagination instead of compromise to solve a problem, meet a need, repair an injury, right or wrong, answer a question, question and answer, to get where we're going, to go somewhere new. And I wondered if this notion of the third thing relates in your mind to, in any way, to the third space of the book and or the third space
1: of the characters within it. It's a fairly portable idea, this third thing. actually it came from my marriage it came from the time that my spouse and I were were building a house uh, a little house that was so little that there were not very many decisions and every single one of them felt very important (laughs) because it was going to determine so much of how we were able to to move and what we could contain in this very small space and we didn't want for any of the things in that house to be a compromise we didn't want to say well you can have your your tile if I can have my you know whatever it was countertop or we wanted every single thing to be exactly the best like the thing we wanted most and so that we decided that we would come up with a third thing whenever we were at an impasse and that the third thing that we arrived at would be better than than either of the things that we had come up with on our own so already we've taken it from something very practical and domestic to something as um, impractical as literature and publishing. And I do think that I had to, with the accident and with this book, with It Last Forever and Then It's Over, at some point I had to abandon my idea of the thing. And the accident, it's a whole, it's a project of abandonment, of, of sort of destroying the thing destroying the idea that I had of the thing in order to f- figure out the thing itself. And this novel too required me to let go of uh, any number of times, but there was, there had to be some moment when I felt it, when I felt like, Oh, I've, I've let go of it. Now I'm not, I'm not reaching for the idea of the thing. I'm, I'm reaching now for the the thing that I feel the thing that it is some undescribed, not previously read thing.
0: Well, I debated when to bring up zombies in relation to the book, because while this book is a book of people who are undead, and our protagonists and others do indeed eat others, when thinking of tropes or genres, and by extension thinking of genre expectations, this is by no means a quote-unquote zombie novel. The comparisons to Beckett, I think more accurately, capture one aspect at least the philosophical gallows humor and the pressure placed on a pared-down language to carry it, but it also is a novel that is a journey, one that feels far more interior and metaphysical than one might expect from a zombie book. But let's spend a moment with the way you employ undeadness as a third thing. There are great lines throughout, like, to be undead is to be superfluous, and perpetual or only the undead can truly understand the meaning of life and you're undead in this book they can dream they have interior lives and dream lives talk to us a little more about undeadness or how undeadness functions in your world
1: it took me a long time to realize that zombies are undead (laughs) (laughs) I spent a a fair amount of time trying to understand zombies and actually the book began after I overcame my I don't know my superior attitude about zombies I was teaching at the time I was teaching undergraduates and graduates but the undergraduate students were especially preoccupied with zombies at that time and um, maybe they are still I don't know It was Harry Potter and zombies when I was teaching. And I was just sort of, I I don't know, I was bored by it or something about it. And, And then something fortunately shifted in me and I became as interested as I should have been. Just interested because they were interested, but also interested because they were interested. You know, monsters are reflections of us at any given time. And the fact that zombies were so popular, it said something that I wanted to look at. And so I had not really done my zombie homework. I had not kept up with with zombies over the years. Uh, So I did a bit. I did a bit of movie watching and book reading. And I have to say, I was really, I really loved Night of the Living Dead and was so shocked by my failure to pick up this cultural work, this great movie, and others too, but I think I had to get through like a lot of. Um, I'm just. Gonna, I was about to say I had to get through a lot of zombie consumption.
0: Before, <laughs> so <laughs> you were eat- you were eating people for research?
1: I was I was eating a lot of zombies, not <laughs> not tasty. Um, and uh, before I could start to think about what they were, and I, and also going back farther to to zombies UMBIs, that sort of African zombie, and that was really helpful when I started to look at zombies and zombies next to each other and what is now considered monstrous in popular culture, but was previously something of great uh, value and a source of knowledge and connection. That helped me get to the realization that they are in this space between life and death, that they are a a bridge or not a bridge, an air gap or something, something that we have to transit. They are a way, they are themselves a transit, a transiting, and that there is something available to the undead that isn't available to the living. And I'm guessing not available to the dead. So this character started to be so liberated for me. All all of the undead in the book became so much more interesting and funny and um, ridiculous. And there was the potential for a, a sort of variety in them and their experiences and their the way they perform this undead experience of theirs, very much the way we perform our experience of life. But they had all of these absurdities available to them that we we don't really have in life
0: well years ago for your artists trust grant and fellowship you described your current projects at the time as including a short story collection called Afterlife about how life reconstitutes in the aftermath of death which i believe is the collection you redact i'm guessing in your redaction project and a novel called Zombie Journal And I wondered if either of these are manifesting in what we're holding today.
1: This is the zombie journal. This is the zombie journal. journal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, when I talked to Adania Shibley for the show about her book, Minor Detail, when I discovered that that 105 page book took 12 years to write, I wasn't surprised. It seemed so. Perfectly distilled and so attuned to the limits of language and its relation to silence. And it's one of, if not the highlight novel for me of the last decade. And I think at least partly because of this. And I feel like your book, of a similar length, shares this distilled quality and this sense of the time that is passed in making the distillation. I was underlining so much of it, it felt like I was at some point underlining the whole book. It's a totally different project from Shibley's in almost every way other than this. Your book is wonderfully and unabashedly philosophical and intellectual and yet always tethered to the heart and to the body. And I think we could even say it often leads with the heart and the body or that the animating philosophical questions arise from questions of the body and heart. The book's incredibly funny and heartbreaking, and you feel the winds of silence of what can't be said, of death, of the non-human sort of blowing between the words. So I'm not surprised that this book has had a long life becoming what it is before its life now. I'd like to focus a lot of our time on the what I see as the core emotional and metaphysical elements of the book, which are endlessly compelling to me. But as a way to set that up, let's hear some of the prose itself, the opening of your novel.
1: I lost my left arm today. It came off clean at the shoulder. Janice, too, picked it up and brought it back to the hotel. I would have thought it would affect my balance more than it has. It is like getting a haircut, the air moving differently around the remaining parts of me. Also, by turns, a sense of newness and lessness. Free me, undead me, don't look at me. Isn't it strange that I never knew a single living Janice and now I know three. I stay in bed all day. If I lie on my right side, I can keep the arm balanced as if it were still part of me, or I can pretend it is your arm and that you are in bed with me. I think about how we used to take a blanket into the dunes and wrap up together, wake with sand in our hair and in the corners of our eyes. Sound of the ocean, big as the sky. I miss sleep. I miss you. Mitchum says, I'm in denial that I am depressed because I am indulging in a sense of loss instead of wonder. Embrace your new existence, he says. I picture myself trying to do this with one arm. When I was alive, I imagined something redemptive about the end of the world. I thought it would be a kind of purification or at least a simplification, rectification through reduction. I could picture the empty cities, the reclaimed land. That was the future. This is now. The end of the world looks exactly the way you remember. Don't try to picture the apocalypse. Everything is the same. Mitchum says it is important to do small, ordinary tasks when you're depressed. That even if I don't do anything all day, I should make the bed. This morning he came in and opened the curtains. He stood over me, that half moon head of his backlit by the window. He picked up the arm from where it was lying on the floor and held it out like something I needed to account for. He said, you've experienced a significant loss. He said, it isn't just your arm. He said, you're grieving your life. Since he broke off his penis, he's Mr. Wisdom. When he left, I closed the curtains again. A glow creeps under my room door from the hallway where the lights are always on. Yesterday, Mitchum preached in the lobby. Today, he set up on the roof. He stands on a side table from one of the rooms. Afterward, I saw Bob following him around, wearing a rain poncho like the one Mitchum wears. Uh Uh-oh. Tried to make a harness for the arm. It is too heavy. Dead weight. Ha-ha. Found a shirt today with cuffs that button. It is red. I stuffed in the arm and buttoned myself in with it. The fit isn't good. The arm slides down, bare up to the elbow, and flops forward in my way, like the dislocated limb of a mannequin. It gets turned around in the sleeve and elbows me in the side. It is strange to see it like this. My hand, my wrist, the fingernails. Smoke has settled down in the sound. Sunrises and sets have been dull and angry. The full moon, dark red. Even inside the hotel, it is hazy. Exit signs are dim irony at the ends of the long hallways. Wildfire, backburn, blitz, any way you look at it, a blaze we set. Mitchum preached on the roof again tonight. Only the undead can truly understand the meaning of life, he said. There is no meaning, he said. Bob was there. He seems to have been promoted. Now he carries the side table around and stands nearby when Mitchum is up there. Which comes first, a believer or a religion? others are showing up now, too. I can't describe how strange it is. Someone puts her hands up in the air, and then the others do it. Someone moans, and the others moan. You can see how this will go. There is talk of a revival. That's another thing. Most of us can't remember who we are, were, are. We are character actors to ourselves, people we recognize but can't name. It really bothers some of the hotel guests. They always have the troubled, distracted look of a person trying to remember something simple. They are attracted to one another. They sit together saying one name after another, hoping if they hear their own name, they will know it. They write names on the walls, in the elevator, on the air exchange unit, on the roof, in the dust, the dust, the dust, the covers, everything. You can take a name for yourself. You can leave one for someone else. But why choose the name Janice when someone else is already using it? And who chooses the name Bob?
0: I've been listening to Enda Mark and read from It Lasts Forever and Then It's Over. For me, the core pleasure and sort of achy pain of this book is the metaphysical element, the ways you, in various ways, meditate on what selfhood and identity are or might be. Also a meditation on death and living amidst or alongside or in relationship with it. And I was actually in the middle of composing a question about this when I received a question for you from another that I think articulates the thing I cherish most about your book far better than I could. So I'm stepping to the side of my own question and going to have our guest questioner ask their question first and then I'll coast on their Brilliance after your exchange with her. So here's past between the covers guest, Sabrina Ora Mark, whose most recent book is Happily, which just won the 2023 National Jewish Book Award in, in memoir.
2: Hi, Anne. Sabrina Ora Mark here. I received It Lasts Forever and then it's over. Out of the blue, it seemed, out of the best kind of blue, from Barbara Epler at New Directions, one of my favorite presses on earth. And I read the first line. I lost my left arm today, and ugh, I couldn't put your book down. It's possible I read the entire thing standing up with my mouth open as I slowly disappeared. And I think. What drew me to it most intensely is how your composition relies on a decomposition. Like first something needs to be erased or forgotten or smudged in order for a story to grow, like seeds that need to be burned in order to germinate. And I was hoping you could talk about how you achieve this. You write about names giving each other names, And I wondered about this kind of writing that always feels as though it's not taking the place of, but acknowledging over and over again what once was there, but we can no longer hear or see or smell what once was there. And I wondered if this was connected to the drawings in the book that feel like sketches and scratches left behind proof of an ancient alphabet. A lost civilization.
1: Mm, Sabrina, what, what, um, what a good question! Meaning, a question that's so smart and smarter than I might have an answer for. Let me try. <laughs> um, very generous, thank you. Well, I've described a bit about those drawings. And their relationship to the structure of the book and the way they held me to something that I hadn't received. Although the the zombie is the thing that I had received, the sort of received form of the book, the genre. And it does a lot of work. You know, working against the ideas that we have of zombies was extremely helpful. I mean, they were always there for me as this foil some other place that I wanted to go. But there wasn't a form that the novel as novel had for me. There wasn't another novel that I hoped it would be like, although there are other novels that I wish I could write. I wasn't writing one of them and I couldn't write one of them. So I was on my own in, in that space. I think in that space of the non-present, the present non-present, something that feels so, immediate and so unreachable. And in that, I'm not just talking about writing, which does feel very immediate and very unreachable to me when I'm doing it. But also what I was writing about this feeling of, of loss and of the lost and the feeling that I have now as someone who's living aware that I will have lost someday what I have now, and that I'm failing to see it. I'm failing to notice the summer day. I'm failing to notice the cold. I'm failing to notice the person I love most. And in some way, those drawings, which were really sketches just tacked to my wall, held me in that space, gave shape, to my listening. Whenever I talk about writing, I I picture myself and I think I do this thing. I I kind of cock my head as if when I'm writing, I'm listening. My posture when I'm writing is listening. Listening for something that isn't here and then making it here with words which aren't anything. So... (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's good.
1: <laughs> so it feels very, it feels very tenuous all the time. It feels very much like a like a casting of a line out to somebody I can't see or 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 waiting to catch a line. There's something about structure for me and the physical, being able to physically do something. Or hold something when I'm writing that is really helpful. I'm a really very material person. I'm very oriented to to stuff. I learned filmmaking when it was still film, and you cut the film and shot the film. And you had to load the film in a bag and risk exposing it. And I was always drawn to the structuralists and the materialists and all the, the avant-garde filmmakers who were just so fascinated by the frame. They really speak to me. And I'm a printmaker. And I do a lot. I love to work with ink. And I love to work in letterpress and things that are very material. And it seems so ridiculous that I'm a writer, that that's the thing that I always wanted to be. It's so immaterial. It's so purely made up. Part of the fun of the actual fun and I, it's not something that i felt really before the redaction project part of the fun of the redaction project was materializing the words was reclaiming them as these these wily or not reclaiming them maybe unclaiming them i found a materiality in language by through redaction that i had not experienced before and at first it was really unnerving i I found that when I redacted a line, I was immediately afraid that it was lost, that it was like, what was happening to the words? Where did they go? And I had this feeling that they they were on the loose. They would go and do other things. And I realized that in fact, they were doing, they did, they did go, words do go off and do other things. And right away, they just get into all, their own business immediately. And That sense of the indeterminacy of language, the fact that it's sort of constituting and reconstituting itself on its own without you feels very true to me. And these drawings were a way of kind of creating a mental framework for conjuring in a particular register consistently, consistently enough to last for the years it took to write the book.
0: Well, I feel like I want to ask Sabrina's question over and over again, but with different words each time. And in a way, I feel like you could say that your book does this. Thinking of Sabrina saying that your composition relies on decomposition, that first some things need to be erased or smudged or forgotten in order for a story to grow, I want to take this into the realm of selfhood and identity because your book puts intense pressure on the notion of an individual self and what a self is both in a compositional and a decompositional way, in a way that troubles selfhood through accretion and accumulation, and also that troubles selfhood through loss and removal. And I wanted to start with the loss, as Sabrina does, even though I wonder if they really exist in a sequence, as she suggests, of first loss in order for something to grow, or if they are constantly superimposed and contradictory as your book is very comfortably dwelling in a place that's unresolvable, a place of not knowing. And I think of how we are both accumulating as we age experience and things, but that we are also paradoxically accumulating loss. Even just in the short passage you read, the main character has lost an arm, and all the characters have lost their relationship to their own names, and which is a bigger loss, I wonder. But both call into question how much can we lose and still be ourselves, whatever that means. And then the mystery of how what one is lost can become central to one's sense of self at the same time. And we see this composition, decomposition, loss, accumulation motif through your work as an art maker, your invisible ink projects for sure, Also, your last book, The Accident, described as not a story, not a record, but rather an account provisional and subject to revision, a reckoning with the ways language and narrative fail to make sense of the recursive, and which Matilda Bernstein Sycamore describes as living in the gap between seeing and feeling, feeling and knowing. But perhaps I think most of your redaction project, which you've just mentioned, motivated by your frustration at editing your story collection, a collection that consisted of many already published stories, some award-winning, but as a whole, despite being purportedly ready to go to an agent, felt lifeless to you. You said, quote, I tried rewriting the stories. I tried just moving on. Neither was possible. They were too good and they were too bad. So in a way, you were sort of in a Bardo state, the indeterminate place. But you say that when you covered up the first word, as you say today, you suddenly felt glad, which led to the realization that whereas writing had never been joyful, redacting was very joyful. And then you sort of joyfully mess with the story collection this way. And I also just have to say I love that the story collection is called Afterlife and that you're sort of giving an afterlife to to a book called Afterlife. But also this notion of how you mentioned your fear of redacting a word and where would it go? Would it disappear? And your discussion in talking about the redaction project that you eventually come to this realization that the redactions are are coverings and that the coverings themselves become compositional tools, where the blacked out words become presences, not just absences. And you say, quote, eventually the revealed words and the redacted words come to be the same thing, the material evidence of the effort to make meaning. And eventually I was able to work into the text to ravel. I was just curious if you see, or how you see, if you do the ways the redaction project is living in the work of this novel. It's another way of asking Sabrina's question, but maybe moving the focus from the drawings to the text. So you, you, you answered her around the drawings, and I wondered if this notion of covering and or erasing, of accumulation and loss, how you see that project that you did with your own work into something else is related to what's going on in in this book.
1: The ongoing project of loss (laughs) is not one that I really undertook intentionally. It does seem to accumulate. Loss does seem to accumulate. I'm thinking about how I realized and, and may have written somewhere about the difference between deleting text from those stories that I was working and reworking and redacting the text. You described the moment that I realized that I, that I was just as interested in the, the redaction as a compositional unit equal to the words. There was also this realization of how, by leaving the redacted lines in place, the sense of narrative stayed in place. If I had just eliminated the redacted words and compressed the remaining words, which I experimented with in various places, there was no sense of event, no sense of time, no sense of story. But even though with the redactions in place, any story is pretty incoherent, there's story, there's a sense of movement, and there's this kind of headlong feeling through the text, it draws you forward, because the line has this power, The a line of words, even when they're covered up, has this power to move you forward, and there was a some, I don't know, there's some moment where a certain amount of redacted text starts feeling object-like rather than narrative-like and I'm, I'm not sure what the tipping point is what the balance of of word revealed word to redacted word is before it becomes a sort of block this visual block but it's a lot you have to redact a lot of text before you stop trying to read it and and that effort to read the fact that i'm acting like i'm reading while looking at this blacked out lines, that feels like something that's happening for this character in It Last Forever and Then It's Over. It feels like she's reading something she can't see. All of the things that she doesn't remember are, I'll just try this out, maybe they're redacted by the things she does remember. A lot of the, the characters have these sort of obsessively revisited memories and they're Almost cynic for the for their lives, but they they have more meaning than they ought to. And then also her movement through space feels akin to that redacted line that moves, that moves you through story, the story that you can't read. She's pressed to move. She's compelled to move. And something really changes for her when she stops moving. when she stops running everything changes for her. So there is something about narrative movement and the impossibility, the illegibility of her own story to herself that feels akin to the redaction, the redacted text.
0: Well, in in talking about your words that remain but covered, you've talked also about the ways Godard's jump cuts in his film Breathless are, quote, an indexical evidence of the missing shots and are radically reflexive indicators of the constructedness of conventional film and of narrative itself. And I feel like your book also calls attention to its constructedness by evoking what isn't said, I think. And I'd like to talk about the way not just decomposition, but composition and construction in your book also trouble identity. This has to do with what our main nameless protagonist puts inside her. And there's many things we could discuss with regards to what goes inside of this character and how that troubles a sense of self, not just the body parts that she loses and how much could you lose in that way and still be you, but also what you bring in. And I want to start with cannibalism, not because it's the main thing, I want to focus on in this regard be- because there's this uncanny phenomenon happening on the show so far this year for some reason around cannibalism. We're talking now in February, you and I, the second month of the year, and already this is my third cannibalism conversation for 2024. With Matthias and Nar, we talked about the corpse wine drinkers of Borneo, about the contradictory feelings we have around a dead loved one, wanting to preserve them and their memories, and yet a deep loathing and repulsion and fear around the body itself, and how this ritual moves toward the taboo instead of away and brings the opposing forces together. And then when I talked with Alvaro Enrique about his book taking place during the encounter of Montezuma and Hernán Cortez, we look at the question of Aztec, human sacrifice, and ritualized cannibalism. How they were not remarked upon by the Spanish in a significant way until they wanted to justify destroying the culture. And in arguing for genocide, they wildly exaggerated their scope. But also the aside that Montaigne, who lived at the same time in Europe, and was encountering so-called savages who were coming to Europe, hundreds of thousands, mostly as slaves, but not entirely. But after his encounter with some indigenous people from Brazil, after a performance by them, he compares their ritual cannibalism to the barbarities happening in Europe in his time, finding his own people's barbarism much more so than these people, who in a ritualized way were actually honoring the dead. But here we have our undead protagonists and others eating other people too, but not as part of an obvious cosmology, but rather in the more post-apocalyptic scenario we think of most often with zombies. At a lecture you gave at Evergreen, you talk about how you grew up in Tahoe and that the chief myth there was that of the Donner Party, who were a group of pioneers who were trapped in the Sierra Nevadas one winter, where some of them resort to cannibalism, even killing two Native American guides for food. My childhood in Colorado was also weirdly engaged with the mythos of the cannibal. One cannibal, Alfred Packer, who was a prospector and wilderness guide, ultimately known as the Colorado cannibal, and the student cafeteria of the University of Colorado Boulder, where I went to school, is called the Alfred G. Packer Memorial Grill, with the catchphrase, have a friend for lunch. These cannibals are closer to the desperate hunger of the cannibals in your book than what we discussed in the conversations with Enard and Enrique. In that same talk, you mentioned that you were working on a book of cannibal taxonomy that was also an examination of whiteness, and also the way that your own family's arrival in Tahoe geographically went roughly the same path as the Donner Party. So it was a first step to talking about not what we lose as we go through life and the innumerable body parts lost in your book, but to talk about what we put inside of us, what we accumulate or consume. Talk to us a little more about this long-standing interest of yours, generally speaking, but also more particularly how you see cannibalism functioning in the world of this, of this main character.
1: It feels like cannibalism in this book is one of the most direct features or allusions to the popular conception of zombie. It's what makes them abject in a way which I think is interesting if if these characters didn't eat people I'm not sure that they would matter to us if if zombies didn't eat people would we care which I think is you know a part of that monsterizing of the original zombie interesting that this religious I'm going to say religious although I may that may not be accurate, but this religious figure of the zombie, this cultural figure of the zombie that predates our popular culture figure of the zombie was turned into a monster. So this black cultural figure is turned into a monster by Western contemporary imagination and made horrifying Not by its undeadness, but by its insatiable hunger, which arguably is the projection of this contemporary Western culture on that original figure, that it is our hunger, our insatiable hunger that we bring to that figure that makes it monstrous. So it's cannibalism in this book that makes the monster a monster, that makes the protagonist monstrous to herself, and also a kind of ridiculous figure to herself, a both horrifying and ridiculous figure. I discovered things about the literary presence of cannibalism in the book. The importance of horror to the story felt new to me. I hadn't reckoned with horror as so narratively compelling, and it's the fact that they eat people that makes them horrifying at first at least. I think as the book continues, what I discovered were the sort of ramifications of that horror or the ramifications of the cannibalism and what people, the positions it puts them in, the, the desire to care for our loved ones when they would just as soon eat us becomes an important question and a different kind of horror. There are all kinds of analogies to make to cannibalism and popular culture and I joke about some of them in the book you know we used to be consumers and now we're just consumers and (laughs) (laughs) there is this sort of taxonomy of cannibals or of zombies that I was working with like they're you know the people have definitely done more and better than I have in any number of reddit threads about you know plague zombies and scientific experiment zombies and alien zombies all the different kinds of ways that people turn into this uh, monstrous version of themselves that hunger to eat other humans but then the the taxonomy of cannibals that i allude to in this talk that i don't know where you found (laughs) um, that taxonomy of cannibals is really about cultural consumption, the cultural, con- specifically the con- cultural consumption by white women of women of color, specifically black women and black culture. And that's not really, that's not not in this book, but it's not what the book is about. I, w- yeah. I think anytime you talk about cannibalism, you you import a lot of interesting questions, but it they aren't necessarily taken up in this book in the way that the thing I'm working on now hopefully takes them up. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, I'm deep into cannibals now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you just as a curiosity, rather than it being specific to the book we're discussing. And this is going to come from my faulty memory from long ago, near the beginning of the show. So over 10 years ago, I interviewed Colson Whitehead about his zombie novel. And I remember researching the origins of zombies then and the question or what I posed to him, I don't think it really, I don't remember it really going anywhere. And I don't know that it was specifically relevant to his book. But just like I had looked into at one point, the theories around the origins of vampires in, in the UK, which a lot of people say is this intersection of like the anxiety around the new freedoms that women were were experiencing along with the immigration of Jews. So you had like this, this woman in this anxiety that she would be lured away by this Eastern European man living on the outside of town, who would then seduce her and and suck her blood. Um, <laughs> so misogynistic and anti-Semitic. But I remember looking up the zombie, and you referenced zombies in Africa. But I was I remember, and I could I could be getting this wrong, but in Haiti, that. Yes. And this was around the time, I think, of the occupation of Haiti by America in the early 20th century when a lot of the American imagination was captivated by voodoo and also a lot of writers were even going to Haiti. But that the zombie was perhaps an anxiety around the uprising of black people against the plantation owners and this idea of this sort of unindividuated you know, like they were supposed to be beasts of burden and they uprise. I don't have any idea if if I'm, if I'm even remembering it correctly, but have you given that you're constantly um, unearthing stuff around this? Does that ring anything, any bells for you?
1: Well, it makes sense to me. One can imagine, one can imagine the anxiety provoked by the enslavement of people. (laughs) that those people would not want to be enslaved and that there would be a horrible price to pay for the horrible thing. The only text, so to speak, that I looked at related to Haiti and zombies in Haiti was Maya Darren's film. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. Yeah, I love her too. I love her too. And it is, as you would imagine... Uh, not a perfect document or or quite a perfect document, a quite perfect encapsulation of the kind of um, anthropological, creative investigation of a culture, not your own. Um, same problems exist today. They were maybe less acknowledged at the time. Her use of film was extraordinary and imaginative and in a way that almost matches what she was documenting, even though there is this objectification happening, but she's so engaged as an artist in the making that there's, that I don't know, there's a vibrational resonance between the footage, her, her making of the footage and what she's capturing in that footage. And there is none of that anxiety in my recollection of watching her film about or her film footage about this and she wasn't working alone is that there was no anxiety. It was only interest in that voodooine concept of the kind of swinging door between the worlds and that there were people who were physically embodying that moment of access from one realm to another. I think that's unusual. I think that that view of Voodoo culture, of Haitian culture, then and now, is not is not typical of somebody coming from the outside and looking in. I think it's fraught with anxiety generally, and that that is that is the roots of that is a root of monster of the monstrosity of this figure. Mm. But now is so two dimensional the zombie which was part of its great function for me that it is so flat it's such a trope but i think it has a lot of importance and i'm i'm i haven't listened to that interview with colson whitehead and i did not read his zombie book at a certain point i just had to stop reading zombie <laughs> it actually it was at a fairly early point that i stopped reading stopped reading zombie books i thought I, so i i will listen to that i'd be interested to to hear what he says or doesn't say in response
0: well, well, back then, the interview, I think, is like 20 minutes long, so oh,
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very different
0: world when, no, when I was doing, doing those, <laughs> those early conversations. Well, my favorite part of the book has to do with the non-human, and particularly the non-human that our protagonist puts inside of herself. I feel like just like both loss and accumulation raise questions of selfhood in your book, also by extension, there's it feels like the book is asking how much of ourselves might simply be other. And I bring this up, I bring this thing up too often, but Gugi Wattiango says, which is more me, my arm or the air? You can cut off my arm and I am still entirely me, but if you cut off the air, I cease to be. Uh, and that's just paraphrased, but I think it's quite profound. It seems to me, it speaks right to the heart of a a mystery about who we are. On the flip side, thinking of accumulation, I think of Amitav Ghosh, who wonders if the very notion of a single species is a faulty notion, noting that the majority of the cells in our bodies are the cells of other creatures. And he cites a microbiologist who describes the human body under the microscope as looking like a coral reef, an assemblage of life forms living together. Where Gauche says, quote, It is known also that microorganisms influence moods, emotions, and the human ability to reason. So, if it is true that the human ability to speak and think can only be actualized in the presence of other species, can it really be said that these faculties belong exclusively to humans? So in this spirit, we have a question for you from the writer, scientist, and environmental lawyer, Jennifer Calkins, someone you've both collaborated with on durational performances, poetry, and visual art, and where you've even performed an erasure using one of her articles in a law journal on the Paris Climate Accord that you just published in Permafrost magazine. And lastly, Jennifer is someone who you've published at The Third Thing, her lyric noir fugitive assemblage. So here's Jennifer asking you a question about the non-human.
3: Hello, Anne. I'm really excited to be able to ask you to talk more about the more-than-human animals that the narrator has a relationship with in this absolutely wondrous book. And in particular, the birds. Now, as you know, I am very cranky about how birds are portrayed in texts. They are are flattened and pinned to the page, used as symbols, and the individual lives and worlds of these birds are usually erased or not present or subsumed to human considerations. And I don't feel that in your work, which of course is no surprise to me, given what I know about how you live your life in wonder and awe and relationship with more than human beings, non-human animals, birds, and otherwise. I'm going to read one paragraph from, from the book, because while part of what I want you to talk about is Crow and the Crows, which of course are a very central piece of the narrative. I also want you to touch on these other beings. And so on page 71 of my copy, you write, A bird, a dapper scrub jay, lands on my forehead and tilts its head so we are eye to eye. And in that meeting, a clue is conveyed that reveals a mystery that wasn't a mystery until there was the clue. Not the kind of mystery that can be solved. Not a mystery of what happened or who did it or even why. This has all been known for so long. The kind of mystery that is a sacrament. When the jay pushes off into the air, it leaves on my skin the firm, live impression of its departure i am so grateful to you for having written those two paragraphs, and I would love to hear you talk more about the feathered beings and the narrator's relationship to these beings throughout this text.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. It's really a pleasure to hear Jennifer read my words. And these paragraphs, uh, I love that she picked these, this little section. It's just a little bit, and it's such a little weirdo in the book. And she went right to it. <laughs> <laughs> of course she did. Well, I share that, that crankiness that Jennifer describes feeling about representation of non-human animals I feel pretty cranky about representation of human animals in books too frankly but I get I get particularly worked up about the impugning of human intention and meaning on all kinds of things this is popping into my head I I had to come up with a name for an event that I'm doing related to the book and I I really I had a hard enough time coming up with a title for the book so coming up with another thing felt nearly impossible. so I I fed all of the text of the book into a word cloud generator. you know, it felt very 90s. I think that they're they're not that old, but it felt like I was going back in time and creating a word cloud and um the word that I use most in the book is the word like, which was a shock to me and an embarrassment. <laughs> like oh, because I think I early, I know that early, early, I got the message that metaphors are better than similes and that good writers use metaphors and weak writers use similes, which is not something I believe, but clearly had totally taken on. And so when this word like popped up, uh, I was, I you know, it was the shock of seeing yourself it's made me think and and write a little bit about this use of simile in the book and in particular related to non-human creatures. I guess I'm counting zombies as a human creature. So the other, the non-human creatures, birds and others, it's related in that I, I don't often say that something is something else in the book. I often say that I I very, very often say that something is like something else. And I feel that's the most I can afford with animals, non-human animals, and maybe creatures in general, humans included, that I can say they are like things, but to say they are things feels like such an imposition and a loss. It isn't just that I... You know, I want to stand back respectfully. It's that also I don't want to lose what's really there by saying, by confusing it with something else, even by deliberately confusing it with something else. So I think I haven't looked at them apart from the other things in the book, but I think that the creatures in the book are like every other thing in the book, that they're they're part of the world and, and confusable in a kind of material way. With the protagonist, she is unclear about where the boundaries are, about what is her, what is inside of her, what happens to what she puts inside of her. She's unclear about what's outside of her. And if when she goes outside of herself, it seems like maybe she's going inside of herself. So while there are so many confused boundaries about selfhood, I hope that there are not confused boundaries about self and other in that way, and the sort of autonomy and agency, the sense of autonomy and agency of that J, that it has this ability to, to change her experience of her existence and yet have nothing to do with her, not be a projection.
0: Well, each chapter has its own epigraph. And I wonder if we could see these writers who are not you that begin each chapter as now part of what makes you you, maybe in a similar way to the way you describe being entirely unrelated and yet changing one's existence. Everyone from ellen Siksu to Dionne Brand to Toni Morrison. Chapter two opens with Susan Howe, who says, For me, there are two alternatives, either swallow or break free. And what is inside our protagonist is often described as other, a subatomic insect, a swarm of bees, but most significantly her placing of a crow within her chest. And this crow speaks to her monosyllabically, and most often, though not always, in three-word sequences that are not sentences, but standalone words side by side. So to extend Jennifer's question, talk to us more about the crow and the crow language and how it's functioning. I mean, I think, of course, of Ghosh talking about how maybe we can't even reason or speak. Maybe our own ability to put a thought together and to say a word is Dependent upon other species. and So how can it be exclusively human? But here we have a different syntax, a different mode of communication happening from within her that is clearly not her in some way but is changing her even though it seems to me the meaning of what is being said within her by the crow is elusive.
1: I'm with Ghosh. All the way on the interbeingness of it all. Now I can be almost impatient with writing that brings together this sort of philosophical or even um, almost intuitive sense of how things are. Yeah, I would say not not necessarily philosophical because not shaped, but this emergent or innate sense of connectedness with scientific knowledge to back it up. Like now that we're looking at the gut biome, it's clear that we're all interdependent, but it but it feels very clear otherwise. And it feels absolutely true that we cannot say or mean a thing without every other thing, that we we come undone without each other. And there's something about the language of the crow that was for me a, a practical letting go of my own intellectual conceit. When I wrote what the crow says, I had to work really hard not to work hard to just word, 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 to not make sense and to not and to uh, to avoid making sense and to avoid saying something or having the crow say something too similar to what the crow had said before. Like, well, if the crow repeats themselves, then the crow repeats themselves. That's going to happen. So there was a letting go that felt like it happened again and again. Every time the crow would speak, I had to practice this letting go of my idea of what a crow says and, and just put down words and not overthink them. And then there was also The changing relationship throughout the book of the protagonist to the crow and what the crow says. At first, she is sort of undone by it, maybe by the shock of it. And then, as the book progresses, she acts like she knows what the crow means. But you also, or I also, as the writer, had the sense that they were talking past each other at the same time that they were both understanding each other, hearing each other, registering each other, and had no idea about the other one, or at least she had no idea what the crow was saying. And more and more, she seems to just sort of take what it says as a either confirmation of what she's feeling or as um a, a clue as to what to do next when she doesn't know. So my sense of the crow is that it is never fully integrated into her that she wants it to be part of herself, that she is replacing some lost thing with its body, some lost thing from herself with its body, and that that never really works. She knows it never works. And also, it hurts to lose it at the same time. So whatever it is that does happen becomes a real thing of its own that's not the same as having lost a a part of herself. It's maybe something worse than having lost a part of herself.
0: Well, this makes me think of a brief meditation you do in the book on metaphor versus the thing itself, which I'm hoping we could hear. Because when Crow speaks, it feels at least to me that the words spoken feel like the things themselves somehow, more than when a human speaks. So if we could, I would love to hear page 25 to 26.
1: There is a black feathered thing inside of me. It's as if all my life I wanted it there or the space for it was there, the possibility. Ideas of things, feelings of things are becoming the things themselves. When I look up at the moon, I expect it to turn toward me and speak. Every metaphor presents itself as what was there all along. I might have described the feeling in my chest as a crow Now the feeling is the thing, a furled feather thing rotting into my unrotting flesh. A hotel might once have been a metaphor for the body, for purgatory, for any transitory site. Muffled hallways, the repeating pattern of low pile carpet, sconce lighting, echoing emergency stairwells that smell vaguely familiar, the sound of doors closing, plastic ice buckets, theft proof hangers without hooks, Drawers no one ever uses. Perfect. And now here we actually are, none of us sure when we checked in or whether this is really our luggage. And of course us. Zombies used to be drug addicts. Television watchers. Video game players. Now zombies are zombies. Consumers are consumers. There is a shift and then there is the sound it makes. Shift the sound of a necessary adjustment, of a thing pushed into place. I have to stop myself from constantly reaching up inside my shirt to check that the crow is still there, still hidden.
0: We've been listening to Anne DeMarkin read from It Lasts Forever and Then It's Over. I'm going to have you read one more passage of a similar length to set up my next question, and that also continues this theme of what Makes up our insides.
1: Do you remember the time we were walking up Columbia Street and we saw something we thought was a backpack or a bulky sweater hanging in one of the ginkgos on Legion? It was dark and bunched up in the crotch of the tree. We were about a block away. As we got closer, something seemed wrong about it. We were probably within 20 feet when we could tell it was alive, maybe three yards, and we somehow knew it was a swarm of bees even though neither of us had ever seen a swarm of bees. We knew it before we could see the bees themselves. It was solid and liquid and crawling and black and shimmering. It was the body of one thing made out of the bodies of other things. One animal made out of other animals. It was a shimmering black octopus made of bees, dripping bees. It kept reshaping itself into a new octopus, Bulbous head and webbed body and tentacles. It was horrifying and beautiful. That's what is inside of me. Only instead of an octopus, it is hunger. Instead of bees, it is made of nothing. Hunger is an animal made of nothing. Mitchum is standing on his side table. His eyes are closed. His voice sounds tired. He says, nothing can be more clear than the fact that nothing is real nothing is real nothing is real so before i ask my question do you want to say anything about mitchum
0: i love mitchum who is the main man in the story who always has an opinion to share and always seems to operate in the declarative mode sort of like a fortune cookie there's a dryness to him. There's he's the source of I think a lot of the humor and sort of uh, counterforce that the, our main character pushes against to test their own feelings. I keep imagining Mitchum sort of if this was a movie as as Bill Murray, um, sort of on the edge of the screen. Um, but talk to us about Mitchum if you have anything you want to say about Mitchum. He must have been fun to write, I would imagine.
1: He's so easy to write. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to say that Mitchum was right there for me. Mitchum came early. Um, He he arrives early in the book, and he arrived early in the process of writing the book. And I don't know. There just seemed like there's always a Mitchum. There's always somebody (laughs) ready to volunteer to lead the cult. You know? Yeah. It's interesting to think how... He changes depending on how you cast him. His Mitchum played by Bill Murray is like wholly different than Mitchum played by, you know, I don't know, Anthony Hopkins or definitely a white man, though. Yeah, no, he has to
0: be an older white man, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the debates our protagonist is having is around what the unresolvable ache they have inside them is. is it hunger or is it grief? And I think of my recent conversation with Diana Koi Wynn where she connects hunger and grief as both being things defined by what neither has. But here they're put in somewhat of an opposition to each other. At one point early on, Mitchum says, my meaning may not be clear, that does not matter nothing matters, my meaning, your meaning, meaning does not matter, only hunger. And he suggests hunger, freed from being satiated, is grace. Perhaps suggesting this hunger lasts forever and only ends when we end. But the more Mitchum talks about nothing mattering, one starts to get the sense that, quote-unquote, nothing is something when he says nothing can be more clear than the fact that nothing is real, nothing is real, I think of the odd quote, poetry makes nothing happen, and Matthew Zapruder's assertion that it is not that nothing happens, it's that poetry makes this nothing happen. And perhaps this is what Mitchum is getting at with the decoupling of hunger from fulfillment, that the hunger itself becomes a thing unto itself. But our protagonist becomes progressively more skeptical that it is hunger. At one point, she asks, in an exchange with a character named Marguerite, she says, why is the moon always full? Marguerite asks, what is it full with? And she responds, hunger. And Marguerite says, grief. And this becomes a compelling alternative to her. And your book puts it forth as not two things defined by what they don't have, but hunger as a defense of form and grief as a surrender. It feels like your book dances between this defense of form and surrender. I think of how Mary Ruffell describes her writing practice, how one part of the day she is dedicated to composing poems and the other half of the day she's, dedicated to erasure of poems, creating poems through the removal of words, or the line in your book, which am I, the abandoned nest or the tree that holds it? And I wondered if you wanted to share any thoughts, whether about this ache that lasts forever and how to name it, or about creating a form that isn't defended, or if any of this is related to the form of the book or even the form of a person as, as our, as our character moves through this world.
1: That's a big question, David.
0: (laughs) All right. (laughs) I'm ready for the big answer.
1: Uh, (laughs) Right. Brace yourself. Here we go. (laughs) All right. Um, Hmm. I was thinking about what is that hunger? Why is this undead creature hungry? Hunger being something that seems to only belong to the living, like only have use. So it had to be something else. The hunger had to be something else. And then I thought about zombies. They don't really seem defined just by hunger. They're not just binge eating at home. They're full of rage. Like they're, They are compelled to violent acts in order to feed themselves. They are so full of rage. And then I was thinking about Anne Carson writing about Euripides and in her preface to Grief Lessons, Ann Carson writes, Why does tragedy exist? Because you are full of rage. Why are you full of rage? because you are full of grief. Ask a headhunter why he cuts off human heads. He'll say that rage impels him and rage is born of grief. The act of severing and tossing away the victim's head enables him to throw away the anger of all his bereavements. Perhaps you think this does not apply to you. Yet you recall the day your wife driving you to your mother's funeral turned left instead of right at the intersection, and you had to scream at her so loud, other drivers turned to look. When you tore off her head and threw it out the window, they nodded, changed gears, drove away. So their hunger in my mind became rage and thinking about what is that rage? Why rage? Why are we raging? not just why are they zombies raging? Why are we raging? I think it's because we are grieving. Grieving real things that we've lost and grieving things we will lose, that we know we will lose. And maybe even grieving not being able to grieve, grieving the insufficiency of our lives to contain this much loss. And there's something about the the way that it's the word it's the word full in that passage by Ann Carson. Why are you full of rage? Because you are full of grief. That connected with me to the sense of this this question about the mysterious inside of the zombie body. Where is it going? Where? <laughs> <laughs> where are the humans they eat going there's no process of them there's no digesting them they must just go into some terrible endless space they are full of some emptiness and and then i thought about it as grief well
0: thinking of defending a form or defending a self versus surrendering The less form about fully living and about no matter what dying, we have a question for you. And I share the same curiosity that this writer has. Here's a question from novelist and short story writer Alexandra Kleeman, whose most recent novel is Something New Under the Sun. And as an aside, I'll say she's also a great profile writer, everyone from Rachel Weiss to Michelle Yeoh and also one of past between the covers guest, Jeff Vandermeer, who I'm not surprised also loves your book. And that profile's titled his novels of planetary devastation will make you want to survive, which I think is a fitting aura under which we're going to hear Alexandra ask her question.
2: Hi, Anne. Hi, David. This is Alexandra Kleeman. I really enjoyed your novel, Anne, and I really like the surrealism, pathos, and incredible humor of it. So for this reason, um, the comparisons that have often been made between it and Beckett's plays and novels really resonates for me. Beckett is often considered pessimistic, and um, I'm wondering if you feel that you are that way, what your relationship to pessimism is in your life, and... Um,
1: if you have any advice for the pessimists out there. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. Well, I I feel like I've never met a, a pessimist who doesn't say they're a realist, but you'll never hear an optimist say that. So somehow the optimists know that they're not right. <laughs> <laughs> really? That <laughs> they're hopeful, yeah. but the pessimists think they are right. Yeah and which doesn't mean they are, but they think they are. I don't think I'm pessimistic. I'm surprisingly serious to myself now. I don't know how that happened. And also I'm extremely enthusiastic. So I'm a very serious, enthusiastic mourner of and lover of all the things. I'm not sure how enthusiastic Beckett seems, but he does seem like a lover of things. And the comparison is just sort of astonishing. So I'll leave that there. But um, <laughs> I any advice for the pessimists? <laughs> My brother was a pessimist who would have said that he was a realist and acknowledged that he was a pessimist. And always in conversation I got cast as the optimist. There was some requirement that I match his pessimism with my optimism. And it's a strange constraint to have to take a position on on it all, right? I mean, things don't look good. Things do not look good. But that can't really mean anything to us, or to me, I should say. I cannot be stopped by that. It's a, a, you know, it's sort of trite thing to say, but I think more and more, and definitely in this book, this book was probably more than anything, a a long process of being with that fact that things don't look good. And I love them all. And that's, that's a bind, you know, that's, that's the painful bind. Well, Thinking of
0: form in relation to selfhood and in relationship to writing form and and in relationship to death and oblivion, it feels like your book often meditates on its own form, not explicitly. So perhaps this could be an example of me reading too much into this. But at one point, when describing the Crow language, after the Crow said, one of its typical utterances of only nouns, no verbs or adjectives or adverbs or pronouns, right after the crow says, apple, arm, ink, crown, the protagonist says, the crow's words hang in the dark, like the fireflies, not like the fireflies. They are separate and not sequential, simultaneous but not overlapping, They are periodic and persistent. The syntax is spatial, as if each word is pinned to a different wall of a room that is my body. I can only look at one wall, one word at a time, except there are not walls, just the night and my body and the words. And when you say the crow's words were like the fireflies, we can look to where you describe them blinking on and off, where you say, I begin to see the intervals between their flashes as connective, a constellation of sentient stars separated by time instead of space, a viscous tick-tock in which I, too, am suspended. I feel it inside me, the static blankness of my arrested cells and the uncertain space between them, the gap between one blink of memory and another, the interval that is relationship, the body of the crow in the body of me, the black hole that is sucking me inside out, the utter unutterableness that I never entered when I was alive. And at another point describing some skateboarders, you say something similar. Everything coming undone or coming together in those few silent seconds between launch and landing. And all of this reminds me of Rosemary Waldrop's notion of gardening the gap, of how writing for her becomes an exploration of what happens between words. In one poem of hers called Driven to Abstraction, she says, And I write, have made a pact with nothingness, make love to absent bodies. And though I cannot fill the space they do not occupy, their shadows stand between me and thin sky. Which feels like a kindred gesture to yours. And your book formally echoes this with many standalone paragraphs gapped by white space on either side. In your previous book, The Accident, even more so with this tension between image and text, between being on the page and the QR codes that are luring us to the screen, all of it asking us to leap across and into the gaps between modes and genres. But the latest book doesn't only enact the gaps through the non-humans and their behavior and in the form of the book, but I feel like it meditates on itself in this way too. There's this great line in the book, the space between me and me is you. This is a mystery, which evokes the sense of the third thing. Your press of the same name also does this, where you say you're not just interested in creating books, but creating culture, and to create culture is to create community. But also the books that you put out are creating a gap, I think, or living in a gap between image and text, or text and performance, or with the reissue of Kane between a book and an oracular deck of cards. And I wondered if this sparked any thoughts for you, um, this continual return within the book to this blinking on and off, this periodicity, this question of, of whether the unutterable and blank is empty or full. Because to me it feels like the fireflies are suggesting, in a way, the form of the book in some way.
1: I think that's right. Different things occur like that again and again. I'm imagining it's (laughs) not exactly remembering where to point to in the book, but it's, if not a motif in the book, a consistent preoccupation of mine in this book and elsewhere with gaps as as an essential material reality. Unfortunate word. What do I mean? Material reality. That my sense that that there's nothing between my hand and the table right now is so incorrect, or that my hand is something and not something and nothing, also very incorrect. In fact, the book had many and wider gaps originally. Almost every white space in the book previously was a page break, and it would be A much longer book, if it hadn't been recommended that that was not serving the book. Um, That was the most significant editorial intervention working with Barbara Epler at New Directions that she really recommended that it be collapsed. And I don't disagree. I do still sort of feel it as a book with more pages and with more space, but I'm. I'm not sure that those breaks aren't more legible as as gaps using white space rather than page breaks. So I'm I'm happy with the way it's formatted. It seems different just like a difference in formatting not like a difference in concept. So definitely to me, I'm not sure if the if a paragraph equates with a firefly but things that are when we see them and when we don't see them things that continue to be when when they're evident to us and when they are not, things that change places between the times when we perceive them. And of course, and definitely importantly, the ways we are in relation, the ways that we are because of being in relation to one another, that space between me and me, which is both a failure to connect, like that it's a thing that's coming between Me and me, and also a thing that's connecting me and me, making me one thing. Um, You makes me me.
0: Well, as we get closer to an end, I wanted to spend a moment with the question of time. Rosemary Waldrop, again, in her Gardening of the Gap process, says she's looking to obstruct the passage of time within the sentence, suggesting the sentence is linked in some way to chronology. And I think you sort of allude to this about leaving those redacted spaces within a text carries us forward in story in a way that if you collapsed it in your redaction project, it doesn't give you the sense of eventfulness. And Waldrop is looking to interrupt the experience of time by using language that imitates duration rather than mimicking passage. Your book title, It Lasts Forever and Then It's Over, obviously is overtly engaging with time. Time as we experience it and an impersonal time that we're born into and fall away from at the end. And the epigraph by Calvino that opens one of the chapters also engages with firefly-like discontinuity, and also this notion of things lasting forever, where he says, if I tell you that the city toward which my journey tends is discontinuous in space and time, now scattered, now condensed, you must not believe the search for it can stop. And there's also the dread of our protagonist of undifferentiated time in this Bardo state or place And there's also this fractal or holographic element in time and space in the book that reminds me of Borges with lines like, the world is big and empty, but inside me is even bigger and emptier. And every live thing is the history and future of all dead things. Every dead thing is the future of all live things. But I guess ultimately my question about time is a question about your relationship to story and narrative of which this book has much more than your previous book the accident did but also like rosemary seems to be working within the sentence against an enactment of time it feels like your book is both telling a story and possibly working against it or at least asking are we just stories or what are we without our stories? Our names have been removed in this world, and certainly names are stories. They accumulate stories. There is a line, Now we are just the stories, a raspy husk of ourselves. In the Pessoa epigraph, We're stories telling stories, comma, Nothing. And I think of Pessoa, who rarely wrote as Pessoa, but as a hundred different invented characters, which begs the question, who is Pessoa? There's even the suggestion that story might not be or might not only be a way to a greater truth, but a way to not see it with lines like, I pretended everything would be okay because it seemed impossible to always be saying goodbye. Which again, touches upon Alexandra's question of are you a pessimist or an optimist, which you've already answered. But talk talk to us about your relationship to story and time or story and self and how you're orienting yourself to that as you tell your story.
1: I feel skeptical of story. And I am attracted to stories. Skeptical because I I, I don't like the feeling of a departure from what's actually here. I don't like the application of a form of of telling on to events. And at the same time, I don't really feel like mine is a project of exhaustive cataloging. I don't. So I, I like the particular. I like about story that, it notices the connections between things. I don't like about story that it tends to solidify or suggest that those are the connections between things rather than all the many connections between things. I can use the idea of the fireflies and the way they all feel Connected, Even though they're separate because of their things that they have in common, that they are all fireflies, that they are all flashing, that they are all in the night sky, that they can all be seen at once. But they are they move around. They, the parts change in space. You can't tell where they're going to be next. They have secret moments. They have invisible moments. Uh, and that feels important to the way things feel to me. I'm trying not to say to the way things are or the way things really are, but the way things feel to me is that you can connect the dots all different ways. And the fact of the the connecting gesture should be acknowledged, that the storytelling should be transparently done so that there is the suggestion of all of the multiple, the innumerable other meanings there in the one. And I think that leads me to fold back on myself often in a sentence to say something and then say it's not that, to say they are like the fireflies and they're not like the fireflies, to say it's like this and it's also like this. Calvino, in his book, Six Memos for the Next Millennium, talks about multiplicity as one of the One of the most important, I don't know, values, skills, qualities for the time that he saw as the future. And certainly multiplicity does something for me that works compatibly with specificity. So not exhaustive, but suggesting many, many more is something I like. You can't say everything and I don't want to say everything. It's hard enough just to try to say this one thing, but in saying this one thing, I don't want to suggest that it's the one thing. So I'll say it a few different ways or I'll cut back on myself and say it differently and also contradict myself, which felt really this particular cast of characters, maybe because they're zombies, really helped me get comfortable with changing my mind with them changing their minds, they would think one thing and later think another. They contradicted themselves, which feels like part of multiplicity that doesn't get enough attention. Like contradiction is really interesting and is certainly a part of me. And what does that have to do with form? Where was that going? <laughs> well, it made me
0: think of the one conversation in the archive of Between the Covers, that's a defense of simile, but I also think is a discussion of multiplicity because it's engaging with the Iliad is the one with Alice Oswald, who I think really evokes the power of simile in contrast to metaphor, which also becomes this discussion of this repetition of all the different ways these people are are being killed, happening in extremely different ways that are also like each other in some ways. Interesting, but um before we do a final reading, I wanted to talk about the end and endings and the and then it's over part of your book title. Your Alen Siksu epigraph is "If the end escapes us, where are we? and eleven years ago you did a TED talk called "Time for the Happy Ending when you talked about your suspicion of happy endings of how even true tales our fabrications, partially because we decide when they end. In other words, we decide how we end. And that the way a story ends tells us what it means. And you talk about your desire to make meaning that is not dependent on resolution. So in that spirit of not ending or ending without resolving, spend a moment with us imagining into the future and what you might, foreground next, of what you most want to bring out into the world next, once you unbuckle yourself from the rocket. I know you have the cannibal taxonomy, or at least at one point you were working on something around this. And you've also mentioned, I think this might have also been at Evergreen, about a project around the figure of the goddess Columbia, the goddess of manifest destiny in relation the story of white women as a symbol of American virtue, while also being a vector of supremacy and violence. I don't know if those are next up, but what calls to you right now, or what is finished that you want to push forward now that you've been pushed forward by the novel prize?
1: Nothing is finished. Uh, I'm really slow. I'm really slow. So... Everything that you mentioned, I think, is is ongoing. I'd say the cannibal taxonomy is just like an artifact along the way to, to trying to figure out what I'm doing with Columbia. I think Columbia is where it's at for me. And I think it feels big. I'm really interested in the way this name, this mantle, this identity, that first was the name for the so-called new world, Columbia, like... Britannia and Africa. It was just a feminization of a, an area in the world. So, the way that became Columbia, the New World became the goddess Columbia, who was actually first figured by Phyllis Wheatley, the enslaved poet. She coined the idea of Columbia as a goddess, this sort of very classical figure of this white woman who was going to bring liberty and all kinds of great things to the colonies as they became a country. And then that became Manifest Destiny, which of course I love because it ties back to the Donner Party and get some actual cannibals in this book. Columbia becomes Columbia Records and then Columbia Pictures, again, this represented by this this white woman for the times she's a ship columbia is a ship the first ship american vessel to circumnavigate the globe she becomes the space shuttle columbia she becomes all all of these towns and counties throughout the us she becomes the columbia river this name gets attached to so many things and i'm i'm interested in this as you said this figure of the white woman as both a, a victim and vector of a particular kind of violence, particular kind of American violence. And so that's, I'm, I'm looking at that and, and all the things about cannibalism that I, you know, I mentioned before the, the, the cannibalism of the white woman and not cannibalism of her cannibalism by her of others. And that does not seem any to be ending anytime soon. So no risk of an ending there, happy or otherwise. It really is a puzzle to me what it's gonna look like. It's so big. It Lasts Forever is such a small story. I'm very excited about what feels like this sprawling story. And I can kind of feel a shape. And I think a shape is what I need usually, a shape and a feeling. I don't quite have the feeling that I can pursue, that I can, you know, keep glowing in my heart as I'm writing and know if I'm doing it or not. But I do have a sense of a shape and I think I just need a lot of quiet. I think I need to, I need to just be quiet and lie on the floor, which I do a lot when I'm writing and I have not had enough time to lie on the floor.
0: Well, before you go lie on the floor with your cats, (laughs) let's do, let's do a, Final reading.
1: I am two places at once. I am walking in the direction I am seeing myself walk. I look smaller and smaller. I feel wider and wider. Where I walk, the sand is wet. In some places, it is firm and strange on the soles of my feet. In others, loose and soupy. From where I watch, the sand is dry. It hisses when the wind blows. I used to imagine how it would be after you died. The way my days would go. It wasn't bad. I would have had so much in having you and would have lost so much in losing you that I would no longer want anything. There would be more time. I pictured myself moving through the quiet house. I saw myself in the garden. My face, my back, my hands changed by not saying anything to anyone day after day. I saw the sheets I would wash and hang out to dry and fold and put away, the short showers I would take, the short hair I would have. I would put on the same clothes every morning and hang them on a hook every night. I was an old woman who looked like an old man. When I would leave the house, I would take my solitariness with me, I would roll down the grocery store aisles, neither fast nor slow, and put only a few items in my cart, not worrying about the cost of the cheese and sometimes buying eight of the same frozen meal. I would make no chit-chat with clerks or retired neighbors. Sometimes I might accept a dinner invitation, and I would bring a gift for the host. Sometimes a young couple new to the block, sometimes an old friend who had known me with you. But it would be a relief to everyone when I left without fail at exactly 8.30, making no excuses. I realize now that when I was playing these silent movies of life after our life, you were still there. You were sitting with me, the two of us alone in the theater, still together. This sadness is not an empty church and not an empty house. It is the whole empty world, and I am in it. And it is in me.
0: Thank you, Anne Demarkin.
1: Thank you, David Neiman. I'm excited to be a small
0: part of the rocket fuel.
1: Oh my gosh, uh, it's really amazing. Thank you. And having your company on this ride has has been truly been one of the best parts. It's just remarkable to have your company waiting, and, and you're really. Your optimism for me, honestly, that I mean, I, I have spent a ridiculous amount of time on shortlists, and and I felt so happy on that shortlist. I was, I could have just stayed there and stayed there, stayed there, because that's my experience of the best thing. But I was wrong. This is the best thing. This is the best thing. <laughs> this <is> the best <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: We've been talking today to Anne Demarkin, the author of. It lasts forever, and then it's over. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded... Volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Anne Demarkin's work, her writing, her installations, her films, and more at anddemarkin.com. For the bonus audio archive, Anne contributes a reading from her book, The Accident An Account. This joins supplemental readings by so many of our past guests long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. And the bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing, things I referenced during the conversation, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year once before they're available to the general public. To a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal tinhouse.com slash support I'd like to thank the Tin House team Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Oge in the book division Beth Steidel in the art department Becky Kramer and Jane Michelle in publicity and Lance Cleland the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops finally I'd like to thank past between the covers guest poet musician composer performer and much more Alicia Joe Rabins making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film at aliciajoe.com. A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com.